eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Clap, 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 clap your hands and stomp your feet. You're listening. You're listening to the Clap Your Hands Podcast. Hosted by Elliot Shore Parks and Kyle Newbeck. Here they come. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another edition of Clap Your Hands, another playoff edition, another playoff win edition of the Clap Your Hands pod, brought to you by Sports Radio 94 WIP, brought to you by Odyssey Sports. And Kyle, I really think there's just one question to start this pod with. It's the the, the thing everybody's thinking about. Who's the more, who's the better paid passer in this city right now, Jalen Hurts or Joel Embiid? Which of those two, you think, is the, is the better paid passer, right? Which is the true elite quarterback uh, in Philly sports right now? Well, I said uh, before the podcast, congratulations to Jalen Hurts for getting Tobias Harris money. It's <laughs> uh, a nice little come up for him uh, yesterday. That is, is always the funny great. thing about, uh, other than quarterbacks, when you look at like big time deals, yeah, it's like, oh man, what a crazy contract for this guy. And it's like, you got like the mid-level exception in it's, the NBA. Yeah. It's it's always very funny. It's got to kill. It's got to kill football players to see that when it happens with the NBA. But they should get a stronger union. So, but well, also they should maybe get better at basketball because most of them think they can be basketball players, and then you yeah. watch them play these like charity games. And there are some of them like I saw To and some charity games and whatnot and. You know, some of those guys are, you can tell they're great athletes, but they're also like six feet tall. They're all like point guard size maxed right. out or they're offensive linemen. So you're not going to be like six, five, 300 doing anything in the, uh, the, or the NBA. Like big baby Davis or whatever. I think AJ yeah. Brown tweeted he could come off a bench and score 12 points in the NBA game. I've been around AJ. He is obviously extremely athletic, but you're right that. It's just funny when you see these guys next to actual NBA players, how they look like me next to them. It's like me it's looking crazy. short than them looking short than them. But look, I think what this conversation real, really tells you is tell me the Sixers are up 2-0 without telling me. I mean, the series, <laughs> the, the series is over. There's really not a ton of drama. But another game where, you know, I think this we, – we led with Joel last time, even though I think a lot of the uh, reaction in game one was not really about him. 
But before we get into Joel Moore, because I do think he's the headline of the game, just overall, game two, what was your reaction to uh, to that win? That man, would I feel bad if I'm the Nets coming out of those two games <laughs> being down two nothing? Because I don't, I don't think the Sixers have played like an A level game yet. I do think that game one they had a lot of things go right, but they haven't put together a complete performance yet. Like Harden mm-hmm. struggled yesterday. We'll get into that at some point, uh, but it didn't really matter. Like they, yeah. they didn't run offense for most of the first half. Doc Rivers is calling a timeout a minute into the second half because they're not following the game plan. Like that's how out of sorts and disjointed they were at times. A lot of crappy turnovers up until that point in the game. And then they basically just ran the same play over and over again. And Brooklyn was so flabbergasted by how easily they got open shots against it that they had to abandon double teaming Joel at certain points. Like I thought it was really funny. There was a moment in the second half where – Joel was just like standing there for seven seconds waiting for the double team to come yeah. and it never came. And he was like, what the hell's going on here? <laughs> did, did, did we finally break them? Like what, what, yeah. what happened? So I, I just think the degree to which Brooklyn has sold out to stop Joel has, it's gone way too far, right? Like it's become so predictable that, he can just make one pass fake or dribble up, dribble away from pressure for half a second. And all of a sudden it's either an open corner three, or if that three gets closed on guys driving to the rim, hitting somebody under the rim, whatever it is. Like, I don't think the nets have an answer. I, I thought they played a pretty good game. Honestly, Brooklyn on Monday night did some lineup changes. They played more small ball. They spread the floor, all that. And, to me, it just seems like the toll of trying to deal with Embiid in the middle of the floor is so significant that basically nothing else matters for them. Yeah, so I, I thought a couple things off that. One, your point about how the Sixers have kind of so easily solved the Nets' plan for Embiid, I think is impressive. Now, it's not a super complicated plan. They just literally double him as soon as he gets the ball. But we talked about this after game one, and I think it's also true after game two. Let's not overlook the fact that there have been playoff series and there have been moments in the Joel Embiid Sixers era where they're unable to solve that problem, right? Like we would come on this pod and say, hey, Joel, they're just double teaming you. You have to be a better passer out of it or the Sixers have to space better. Doc, you have to coach better to get them ready for it. It is very clear coming into this series, they knew what to expect and they are very, very ready for it. So I think that's important to note that while it looks simple and to your point, there are moments where Joel is sitting there and he's just like waiting for them to do it because it's so, so predictable. We shouldn't just completely gloss over the fact that they have done an excellent job breaking this down and completely taking advantage of it. So that, that for me is one from last night. But I also think for me last night and really kind of the arc of this pod has been like, when we started the pod, I would have traded the Sixers roster for the Houston Rockets. Right. And you told me to calm down. Maybe that was a bit of an exaggeration, But you also told me, you know, to enjoy the team. So I think throughout this pod, I've been better at just believing in them and enjoying them. But I think last night, to an extent, was another step up for me in realizing I really do trust the Sixers team because they come out and they do a lot of the things that we criticized them for early on. We did this pod like effort wasn't great. Sloppy play. Harden looks like he has no investment in the game whatsoever. And there wasn't a second of that game where I thought they were going to lose. In fact, when when the halftime when halftime came and they were only down five, 
I tweeted the Nets, the Nets would feel discouraged by this. The fact that they've played so well and the six have played so poorly and they're only up five, it A showed the talent discrepancy. But I really think the fact that they could come out and play so poorly, I was I was at the game, so I didn't see the halftime show, but apparently Charles Barkley was ripping into their effort and saying, This is why you don't believe in them. I had the I had the opposite effect. I think last night seeing them. You know, just again, come back, make the come, make the comeback, show that they can start slow and come back and win. I thought that was an encouraging sign, even though the even though the opponent's not great and against the Celtics, that certainly is going to be tougher. But I'm past the days of, you know, at least now being frustrated by lack of effort to start because it's game two. It felt like the series was over heading into the game. They came out slow. They rebounded well. They won the game. I don't really think there's a lot there to be worried about in terms of their lack of effort to start the game. Yeah, so I dunked on this guy on Twitter last night who tweeted nice. at me right before halftime and was like, tough night for the this team is different crowd, LMAO. And yeah. so keep in mind, they're down like five to seven points at this point. Yeah. And it's like, how, have you watched this team play this year that you think, or watched the NBA in general, that a seven-point deficit with a couple minutes left in the first half is like some insurmountable, mm. oh, my God, the game is over type lead. So I, I thought that was very funny. Like people somehow still have not set aside the the panicking tendencies of the past. To me, the number one story of the game and the number one story of the first two games is that Joel Embiid is just trusting his teammates. And, you know, I, I talked to or I asked several people after the game last night, you know, what's behind this? Why do you think he's grown in this way? So on and so forth. Doc Rivers, very funnily, was like, he's just got better players with him now, which is like <laughs> a really kind of hilarious dig at like his teammates in the past. I thought right. it was very funny. It is true, though. Like, the mm-hmm. look, they have a better rotation of guys, guys that he trusts, like, even down to the Jalen McDaniels of the world, more trustworthy on offense than Matisse Thibel ever was. Like you can, we can go back and forth about, oh, he showed progress and he had this hot month from deep, but like nobody gave a shit about what <laughs> Thibel did in like January right. or February or whatever it was. Like this is, do you trust these guys when it counts? And I think you've seen over and over again that Joel does trust these guys. Now, again, First round, different from the second round, different from the conference finals. And he's going to see different coverages. Not everybody is going to so plainly show him what they're doing, right? And I do think there were possessions in that game where they hit him with well-timed doubles where it wasn't instant. He puts the ball on the floor. Somebody hits him from the weak side. He turns the ball over. He's still got to clean that kind of stuff up. But I think the fact that you're seeing Joel win the game – through different ways you know he had 19 rebounds last night one of his i think that was one of the best rebounding halves in a playoff game in sixers history that was well, like i saw awesome... that in the game i think he's the first player in nba playoff history to have 15 rebounds and five plus assists in the first half of a game so he was certainly impacting the game in a lot of ways not scoring early on yeah and it was funny like a lot of the people who are big Jokic boosters were mocking him <laughs> for that first half it's like Bro, if Jokic had an 8 15 5 half, you guys would be fucking falling all over oh, yourselves to be like, what a genius this guy is. <laughs> and, and I, I, so look, we don't have to go down that road. But the point is, I, I think the important thing we've seen from this opening two games is that 
Joel is doing the right things at the right times, and he's giving himself up for the team. He's figuring out ways to impact the game, even when the, the Nets are essentially saying, we'll have anybody but you beat us. Yeah. We're going to do whatever we can to get the ball out of your hands. And he's weaponized that against them. Like he's using pass fakes and, and using one dribble to get out of pressure. And look, he's been really, really good. He had a lot of turnovers last night, but I do think it was probably misleading. I think a few of those were kind of bullshit. Don't really count last 30 seconds. I agree ball with that. Type yeah. stuff. Well, the one like, dude on the Nets stole it with, stole it from him with like four seconds to go. If I was he had two that, turnovers yeah. in the final thirty seconds, so we yeah, can, like, what the fuck? Like we can get rid of those. And then there's a third one where he had a kick ball under the basket as the shot clock was expiring, and he was just like, "Ah, eh, the possession's over." Right. So you say five turnovers. That's a lot different, and I think people probably will not go that far into looking at the turnovers, but. That's why you come to this podcast and my writing to make sure we get the accurate turnover report for Joel. Exactly. I mean, I hate to be like a watch the game bro guy, but I think anyone that watched that game saw maybe there were one or two passes that weren't great, but he was also passing at a much higher clip than he normally does in a game. I mean, every time he gets it, he's doubled in making a pass. So I, I didn't think turnovers were a problem for him last night. I thought early on, especially he looked really good passing the ball. Um, I will go down the Jokic road for a quick second because because <laughs> I just thought last night showed the whole debate about who's a better offensive player is, is always been silly to me because Embiid, Embiid can score 40 points if he needs to. Jokic can't do that, right? But what you're seeing is if Embiid had to play Jokic's game, he could do it. Like Jokic is, is a better passer than Embiid is, but let's not act like there's some massive difference. Like Embiid can run the offense as the pri- as the primary mm. There is a pretty big difference. If you want to say he can, if you want to say he can put up a lot of assists, I would agree with that. I Jokic is a much better passer because Jokic is maybe the best passer in the league. So here's another good comparison to Ben Simmons. But anyway, so (laughs) what I would like, what I'm saying is honestly, if Jokic is averaging 10 assists, Embiid could average eight or nine if that's what he decided he needed to do for the offense. And that's what I think these that's what I think these first two games are showing that if Embiid has to pass the ball and that has to be his primary skill, he can do that. Jokic, that's what he does in Denver. This was always the biggest difference for me. Jokic can't score like Embiid scored. Like Embiid can score. He just flat out can't. So I thought there was a moment last night where Embiid was doing a great job passing. Like, and Jokic was probably watching just being like, fuck, man. He can do this too. Like so much, so much for that. Uh, so much for that argument for me over him. So I did think again in the first two games and especially last night, Embiid showing that it, he can impact the game in a ton of different ways besides scoring. He can score if he needs to, but if he has to be the primary facilitator as a passer on offense, if he has to be great on defense, he joked after the game he had more than three blocks. I probably agree with him. If he has to rebound the ball, he can do all those things. If the scoring is not how he's going to carry the team. That was one of the all-time Joel pressers, by the way. He had he had like four to five lines where it was like, oh my God, this guy. Yeah. We're talking about his maturity and his playmaking and his selflessness. And then he's making fun of Nick Nurse and, and making jokes about uh, a Reddit conspiracy about <laughs> Jaron Jackson Jr. getting too many blocks and yeah. just on and on and on, talking about how they're crying to the officials. It's just... So and then the funniest part, and like people will get mad that are opposing fans or whatever. 
I I think people should realize by now Joel doesn't care about being a hypocrite. He's just gonna say what he thinks. I love he it. He did the whole the Nets are crying for whistles and good for them. They got some more calls. And then like right at the end of his presser, he's talking about James Harden and he goes, you know, he hasn't gotten a free throw in these first two games. And <laughs> I just think that's insane. And it's like on and on and on and on about yeah. like why James Harden should be getting free throws. And it's like just so funny to watch this guy light people on fire and then be like, actually, I'm going to do the same thing as well, them because I, well, I understand how the game works. I, I right. got to play that game. He knows how to play the media game for sure. Let, let me ask you this one last Joel thing. Um, so to me, it looks like, like when I watch him double Joel, and I understand why all teams don't do it because he's showing he can beat it. But to me, I'm watching this and thinking, do you think the Celtics are just going to do this to Embiid, take the, like, and just again, count on someone else to beat them? Like, do you think this is a Nets specific game plan, someone that a team will use on Joel? Or do you think this is the game plan of just blitzing him right away, doubling him? make other t- other players make shots is something the Sixers should prepare for this whole play, th- their whole playoff run. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. If I had to guess, I don't think Boston is going to hard trap him. And I honestly think, historically at least, now Missoula has only been the coach this year, so it's harder to know compared to when it was Brad Stevens over years. And, you know, Udoka sort of also did the same thing last year. I think that they historically have been like, if he wants to get his and score 30 or whatever it is, that's fine. We're going to cut off everybody else. And like, I understand that philosophy. We've talked about it with Mikhail Bridges in this series that you say, look, if he scores a ton of points, that's great. But if nobody else is getting involved, it's a road to nowhere. And I do think that the Celtics probably feel good enough about Horford, well, maybe they shouldn't at this point, but they have always felt good enough about Horford in single coverage against Joel that they'll say, look, we'll take our chances. Mm. If he puts up 45 or 50 or whatever, then great, you tip your cap to him. I I think the interesting thing was last time they played, it was Grant Williams who got that assignment, and he has no fucking chance against Joel. So I I don't know what they're going to do. They They did change their starting lineup to open the playoffs. My guy, Derek White, getting the starting nod over uh, Robert Williams III. So we'll see if that holds. I think that poses some interesting problems. Really, the thing that Boston has always done well is they they confused you all with the timing of their doubles. What Brooklyn has done wrong is that I think it's so consistent that it's Joel catches the ball, we're trapping. And, and mm-hmm. like, look, you get the ball out of his hands. That's a success in some ways that he's not able to go to work as a scorer. But if he knows what's coming every time and when it's coming, and he can think, all right, ball's in my hands. This guy's coming from the weak side. Or if it's the coming from the passer, for example, they switch and Nick Claxton jumps on him when he's in the game. Then that's just right back to James Harden. James can drive. James can pass, whatever. Boston yeah. will not do that. Boston will say, we'll give you, you know, 
a second and a half, two seconds, three seconds, and then blindside you. And then the next possession will trap you. And then the next possession, it's single coverage. And they'll do a better job of mixing and matching. I just feel like the Nets, their biggest problem is that they've allowed him to get really comfortable against these double teams and know with, I'd say like 90% confidence, what is coming on a given possession. So you're seeing some of what you're going to see the rest of the playoffs against different teams. But I do think other teams will be better at making him feel uncertain there. Yeah. Wow. I just learned something. I pre- that was a good answer. That was more, uh, cause I was, I was watching the game last night thinking like, why didn't people just do this to him all year? Just double them. But you're right. They're, they're being extremely predictable in how they're doing it. So it'll be interesting to see once this gets wrapped up in four games, if the Celtics do it the same way. Um, but to that point to kind of move on from Joel. So if they are going to double Joel in some capacity, I mean, we'll keep talking about the nets, but really let's be honest. We're talking about larger picture here. Harden's going to have to make him pay. Last night, Maxie was the one that did it. Um, what did you think of James Harden last night? Because uh, to me, it just seemed like such a classic frustrating Harden game. He looks disinterested. He's sloppy with the ball. He's not running hard. I just, early on, I thought he was their main problem when it came to effort and like a lack of flow on offense. But but what were your takeaways from Harden's game? My takeaway is that he sucked. That he was there terrible. <laughs> yeah. um, and that's the pod. Thank you, everybody. Yeah. That that. Thank you guys for listening and tuning <laughs> right. in, and we'll talk in Same a day or two. Sucks. Yeah. Um, no, look, he was really bad, and I think a lot of the stuff that I mentioned it in passing last podcast, but the inside the arc finishing is just really bad, and that's a concern. I do think there were. There was a moment or two that I thought he looked good where he beat Claxton on a switch, got to the rim, and then he just missed. But, like, we can only say, oh, he looked good beating him, but then missed at the rim yeah. so many times without being like, all right, man, but eventually you got to make a fucking layup. Why like, do you, you think can't he's just... missing? Do you think it's just bad luck, just like, you know, like a hitter in baseball going through a cold streak, or do you think this is a, a larger sign of something that's wrong? Well, I do think you can see the difference between – when he goes up hard toward the rim and James putting up these like little push shots where he doesn't look like he's committed to getting there. And I never, it's hard to say whether that's he can't do it or he won't do it. Like, is he trying to sell out for calls? Does he want to highlight, is he shooting that shot? Cause he knows he's getting hit on the forearm or something, Mm. or is he doing it because he doesn't want to jump at Nick Claxton or, Dorian Finney-Smith or Mikhail Bridges or whoever it is, and he's just more comfortable taking a bullshit floater or runner or whatever it is. Like, I mean, I don't know that. He didn't talk after the game last night, so it's hard to know what's going through his mind, what his body is feeling like. If it is that second one, do you think that's injury-related or do you think that's just where he's at in his game? I, I I would think it's more mental than physical. Like, you can't come out after game one and be like, body's feeling great, blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden things go poorly. And it's like, oh, well, actually my Achilles has been bothering (laughs) me for for four months or whatever it is. And it's you can't have it both ways. Either you're feeling good or you're not. And I think a lot of the mistakes you saw him, like set aside the shooting, the mistakes you saw him make were all mental stuff. Like lost the ball in transition with nobody around him a pass to nobody in the corner. Like there's just nobody there, a bad turnover. That's the stuff where it's like, he's a little bit in his own head. You hope that it's just a, a one game struggle. Maybe he was at uh 
Delilah's too long <laughs> the, the night before, and he's just right. not locked in all the way. Right. And he's not taking the Nets that seriously. Like you hope it's something like that. But this kind of performance is exactly why he's going to have to earn the trust of people that he's going to be able to get it done long enough in the playoffs for them to win a title. Right. Because I mean, if we looked at raw box score stats for Harden in the playoffs, it's not like he's a bad playoff player, right? Like no, we not can at say, all. Yeah. Got good averages. He's had some big moments, so on and so forth. But he has these inexplicable, just mentally tuned out games. Yeah. And on top of that, on defense, he's just not very good, right? Like the the mental checkout component is pretty much, I won't say always there, but is very present in his game most of the time. So when he does have these offensive struggles and he's tuned out mentally on offense and you know, kind of going through the motions, he's not making up for it at the other end. And that's kind of the problem. If he was the sort of guy that would say, all right, I'm having a bad shooting night or I've got bad turnovers, but then he's locking people down at the other end of the floor. It's like, okay, that's somebody that I you can go to war with and he's going to find ways to win, whatever. Like it's It's what we're saying about Joel. He's not right. scoring. He's not doing this but he's got 19 rebounds. He's playmaking. He's doing this. Like the best thing they could say about Harden last night between Doc and Joel and all the other guys is, well, he really managed the game. And I was like, <laughs> man, are we having Ben Simmons flashbacks here? Like, oh yeah. yeah, he got us into our stuff. And like, yeah, there's an element of that. Sure. He got them into their sets. They got the ball to Joel. That's an important part of why they took off in the second half. But if that's the best thing you can say about him in a playoff game, we're going down a dark road, man. And I hope that's not uh, that's not all we see from James. Although I will say there was a moment where Maxi tried to do a uh, pass to Joel and just couldn't get it to him. So it does make you appreciate those little things that Harden does well. Um, what, what I can't decide about Harden, and I'm genuinely on defense about this. This was not often where I find myself on issues. But I really can't decide if I'm worried about him or not. Because I was so strongly after game one, like, he looks good. He played well. Obviously had all those threes. He looked physically healthy. He got to the rim. Missed layups are what they are. But I think it kind of is probably what you just said, how he just has these games. And the frustrating part about it is the Sixers are just going to have to hope and pray this doesn't happen against Boston. Like point blank Flip period. a coin, man. Yeah, Flip exactly. Coin. That's... And that's, that's the frustrating part, right? Like you just have to hope. And I think what makes it especially frustrating is it just seems mental. Like, it doesn't seem physical. Like, there's just – sometimes there's people out there – I mean, look, I can speak to it. Like, some days I go into the radio station, you're feeling – you're just not feeling up to it, and you're like, oh, I'm having a bad day, whatever. But it seems like Harden just comes into these games sometimes and is like, well, I'm a little out of it, and he has so much trouble rebounding and getting himself into it. So that is kind of where I would fall on Harden, where I don't see physical issues that make me concerned, and in some ways that's better, right? Because if he was dealing with an Achilles injury – that's a real problem. But then in some ways, the mental stuff is so helpless. It's almost more frustrating in that way because it's not something, you know, like uh, like an Achilles injury where a trainer can work on it. It's just kind of, you got to hope going into this game, Harden's decided he's going to bring it. And against Boston, maybe he will. It'll be high impact games each time. I think last night did feel like the series was over already when the, when the game tipped. So maybe that's it. But the Harden thing after last night, it does, yeah, it does creep back, you know, concern into your head. So I'm going to circle back to something that he actually said prior to the series starting. He says, when you win in the playoffs, feels like you're never going to lose again. When you lose in the playoffs, 
it feels like the season is over. Yeah. And so if you apply, if you apply that to individual performances, like game one, James hits a ton of step back threes, and it's like, man, James Harden is back. They're going yeah, on a finals run. The league. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. Game two, he has a poor game. And we're all like, is he cooked? And oh my God, they're <laughs> losing in round two. This yeah. is a disaster. Daryl Morey's going to pay him 200, whatever million dollars right. and cripple the franchise. And it's like game at a time, everybody. They got yeah. two wins down, 14 more to go to win a title. That is ultimately what matters. Like we could, cause look, we could do the same thing with everybody else, except for Joel and Tyrese. It's like, look, box score says what it is. Maybe the plus minus is bad. Maybe the shooting numbers are bad. Whatever it is. The important thing is 2-0, finding yep. ways to win, adjusting to the moment. I don't care if Joel scores 50 or 5. I don't care if James scores 30 or has 15 assists versus 1 assist. If they manufacture ways to win and they come together as a team. And look, we haven't even brought up Tobias Harris. Like That was a great Tobias Harris game Yeah, and he was good night. in game one. Great second half performance. Like it's going to take, like I wrote this in the recap last night. Tobias is going to be on the floor for like every single important possession this team has in fourth quarters, right? Unlike PJ Tucker, who Doc benched last night, I thought it was an interesting decision late in the game. Tobias is just going to be on the floor. Like I don't see any reality where Doc says, Tobias, you're out of the game. And so to see him step up, on both ends of the floor, like making defensive plays, changing his role on offense where he's operating in the dunker spot, getting going in transition, honestly crashing the offensive glass, which I don't think he's a good rebounder at all. I think that's one of the reasons that they've been such a poor rebounding team. And so Tobias doing all those things to help manufacture a win, that's what it takes to win an NBA championship. It's not always like, look, ideally in our brains, we'd love to say, Joel Embiid scores 40 points a game. The best players are the best players, and that's why you win. But a lot of times you win because Joel shoots 7 for 20, has an okay game, and somebody steps up. Maybe that's Tyrese Maxey. Maybe that's Tobias. Maybe Mm -hmm. that's Paul Reed. Maybe it's Jalen McDaniels. You don't know what a game is going to require on a given night. So I try not to get too lost in James had a bad game, this guy had a good game, whatever it is, and you focus on they all season long have manufactured wins and they figure out ways to beat different coverages, different teams, different styles, and they just keep marching on. And, and right now that's all that matters. Well, and again, this is kind of, it ties back to what, how like a main takeaway from my, from the game last night was I just believe in them more than I used to. And I think what you just said is probably why, because all season I've seen them win games where we come on afterwards and it's uh, Harden wasn't that great, but you know what? Like man, Melton really stepped up or, Embiid was only okay, but Paul Reed had the Paul Reed game. And so they were able to win that game, right? So I think that's just such a major difference between this team now and what they used to be. And I think that winning those ways again and again and again has given them confidence that they can. Like in past years, when Joel has struggled and you don't have as much of a track record of seeing them win games anyway, I'm sure even within on the bench and in the locker room, there's a feeling of, uh oh, like Joel doesn't have it. This might not be going well for us. Whereas I do think this year there is a sense, and I really felt it in the stadium last night too. Like there was frustration from fans. It was probably a little quiet to start. But that second half when they got going, it was unbelievable. Like I don't think fans really ever felt that they were going to lose that game. So 
Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. The, the manufacturing win things is, is extremely impressive and in some ways more important than overreacting to a bad Harden game. Um, the last thing I wanted to talk about with this game, and then I guess we should actually probably get into the leading scorer, uh, Tyrese Maxey, but <laughs> talk about the second half, right? I mean, I don't want to call it the most famous timeout of all time because certainly you know, <laughs> there's the Chris Webber fake timeout. There's all types of things, right? But when Doc calls that timeout a minute into the third quarter, I'm, I'm sitting up there in the nosebleed uh, press box section saying to myself, what is this dude doing? Like, you're wasting a timeout. It's a close game. I probably do have a little bit of football brain there in the way that I'm thinking you might need that timeout later. In football, they're a little more valuable in terms of managing the clock. But I was still like, this feels like a waste. You just talked to them a minute and like, you know, 10 minutes ago in the locker room. What I thought was interesting about the timeout, because I, I, you know, I don't often get a chance to watch NBA timeouts, is he talked to them for like half the time and then he just walked away and they all kind of talked amongst themselves. Uh, you see the video uh, that was on TNT of Doc just he saying, come on, man, a bunch of times. So maybe not the most inspirational Quote, well, so here, let me comment on that real quick. I it's always so funny when people react to what they show in uh, the huddle during a timeout because they're not showing you anything that was actually relevant to the time. Hundred like, percent. The yeah. timeout is not Doc Rivers saying, "Come on, guys, let's go." That's just what they're able to show without giving away strategy on yep. TV and like censoring f bombs or whatever else, like. That is not what an NBA huddle is like. I just want everyone to be clear well, on that fact. And you're 100% right. But I also think even let's just live in the fake world where that's all he said. I don't know, man. I thought and I thought it was a bad timeout. But you look, you call they call it. They immediately go on, I think, a 20 to 5 run or something absurd like that. Clearly, it was a great call. And what he said worked, whatever it was, what we saw, what we didn't saw, what we didn't see just yelling come on man out of a bunch of times. Maybe this is a team that he felt just needed an extra little kick and he didn't like what he saw in the first minute. And I think that if, uh, you know, like who's a popular coach, like if, if Nick Sirianni called that a timeout or, you know, and like the, the team was great after that, right? Like people would be like, what a call by Sirianni, how great it is. To, to me last night, such a perfect example of people not wanting to give Doc credit. They were literally were losing the game. They come out sloppy in a minute in. He does something somewhat unconventional, calling the timeout a minute in, and they immediately go on a run and win the game. Like I'm not saying they would have lost if he not if he didn't call that. They were gonna win win the game either way. But it was clearly a big moment in the game, a big momentum shift. And Doc deserves credit. It's a great example of having a feel for the game, knowing his players, and doing again out of the box, uh, out of the box thing to help the win. I, I absolutely think he deserves credit. And I thought it was a big moment in the game. So I am already sick of hearing about this. Fucking I timeout, But I, <laughs> I just want to say, I will actually take up for doc in the sense that this is a classic Greg Popovich move. Like he loves team comes out flat or doesn't run a play or whatever in the first minute or two. That's a just, he's running out there. Get back in the huddle. I'm going to curse every last one of you MFers out. And that's you should have asked him last night. Uh, would Greg have would, that would Greg Popovich have called that time? <laughs> would Greg Pop that, that's a chapter right there. <laughs> no, so, so, but here's what I would say. So the problem coming out of halftime, at least as far as Doc explained it to us, was that they had their halftime talk. They said, this is the problem. This is the solution. This is what we have to run. Okay, let's go get them all you guys and then <laughs> they go out there and they didn't didn't run the play they were supposed to run to start the game harden gets torched and doc is like 
what are be for fucking real you guys yeah. like what are you doing and so i respect it from that sense like he said i told you to run this play you didn't run the play and this is sort of the sort of thing that i think a lot of doc critics have always wanted from him right like lay the law down if they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing if there's not accountability if they're they're not living up to their responsibility to the team then let them know that pull guys call a timeout whatever it is so it's something that appeals more to other people than me. Like I thought it was a good timeout in the sense that don't don't mess around. This is a close game. You don't want a five point halftime lead to turn into like a twelve point halftime yeah. lead or third quarter lead for Brooklyn, and then you start to fall down. That all right, we got to change up what we're doing dramatically. So it was good, but it's not football where timeouts are like the most quintessential thing. Like there's a reason. That Phil Jackson, who's considered the best modern coach, well, I guess Tim and Popovich, we can debate right. that one. But Phil Jackson, who was the modern standard for coaching for so long, his whole thing was during the regular season, he basically never called timeouts when teams were going on runs because he wanted his players to figure it out on the floor. Now, you get to the playoffs, there's a little more micromanaging and all that. Mm -hmm. But I think the overall philosophy is sound. And it's why I believe, like, this comes down to the players. It's all about this wasn't like Doc pulled him into the huddle and all of a sudden it's like, we're going to re-engineer the offense. It was just him saying, this is a reminder that this is very simple and you need to run this play and that's it. And sometimes the simple stuff is all you need to uh, to get on the right track. Yeah, I, look, I think we're mostly on the same page that head coaches don't matter as much as they're kind of discussed sometimes when it comes to the success of a team in the regular season, but also in the playoffs. I just think last night was a very clear example of like that game was different before the timeout and it was after it was different after the timeout, whatever was said, what, whatever, it was clearly a good move by doc. And I think through two games, like, you know, I'm not saying out coaching the Nets is going to be in his Hall of Fame case one day, but <laughs> through two games, he has, you know, he's gotten him beat ready. He's gotten the team ready. They come out flat. He calls the timeout. They win the game. It's been an impressive two games from Doc. That's all I'm saying. I'm not, you know, like it's hard for him to get credit in this town. I think through two games, he's been, uh, he's been really good. But the last person I want to talk about who was no question about it, very good last night. Tyrese Maxey, leading scorer in the game, 33 points. Uh, I will never not be impressed by what a good shooter he is. I just simply will never, will never not be impressed. Like every time he shoots it, it floors me how good he is. Like it's one of the most, you know, I, again, I covered Jalen Hurts who jumped from year one to year two and was unbelievable. Maxey has taken that same leap in his career as a shooter. He'll probably get a similar contract or more money because of it. But last night, stepped up, uh, to your point about manufacturing wins, wasn't good in game one, stepped up, helped him win game two. What was your takeaway overall from Maxi? Yeah, I mean, to that point about his shooting, there was a moment in the first half where he hit a corner three where he's on the move, fading into the yep. corner, basically falling out of bounds as he catches it. And off balance, somehow squares his shoulders, knocks down a three. And I said to Rich Hoffman, as it's happening, I was like, you know, for how difficult that shot is, it's unbelievable how much confidence I have that he's going to make that. And the transformation he's undergone as a shooter, it's not just that he's a great shooter now. It's that he came into the league and was not willing to take a lot of these shots. It's a lot yeah. of like they had to coax him into, or at least it felt like this. Maybe there's more than we know. And the coaching staff was like, 
we don't want you taking threes and you got to prove it and this and that. And right. He's alluded to like, he did have to work his way up the totem pole in order to get more leeway as a shooter. But like, even still, there were open shot opportunities that I know the coaches would have wanted him to take that he just wouldn't take as a rookie. And so to see him grow from there to be a guy you just simply cannot leave open, like it, it just, it is not an option to say, we're going to let Tyrese Maxey try to beat us because yeah. he will beat you. Like it is not, he might beat you. He will beat you. He's yeah. going to make open shots. And like, that is sort of the problem with the configuration on defense the Nets have. You go back and watch the tape. There are a lot of possessions where he's just standing there in the corner open or standing on the wing open. And it's like, you're going to leave him one pass <laughs> away or a skip pass away wide yeah. open. This guy has consistently been one of the best shooters in the league for like, Almost two, year, two years yeah. now, yeah. at least like a year and a half, I would say. So for him to get to that level has been such a huge development for this team. It has essentially rendered those conversations about should Melton start, should Tyrese come off the bench? They're all meaningless because you cannot take that level of shooter off the floor. Like the, the transformation that has on the offense, both in the half court and transition is just so significant and like, he should be honestly really proud of the progress that he's made because I mean, that kid's going to make a ton of money and he is capable of these games. Like I, I said at some point on press row last night, I was like, it just feels like a Tyrese avalanche is coming at some yeah. point. Just one of those games where he's in a groove, he's hitting these tough shots. And so to see him hit all kinds of different shots on relocations off the dribble just standstill threes where those are just practice shots for him. It's so impressive having seen where he started from the baseline as a shooter. And look, I, I just assume this is the future moving forward. He doesn't strike me as a kid who's going to stop putting in the work or stop caring about his craft. We can honestly, at some point start getting into what's the next evolution for him. Like what's mm -hmm. the next step for him as a player? I just think he's a, a super impressive shooter and scorer. I, I think the other side of it, though, is Cam Thomas on Brooklyn's bench must be so jealous because there was a point where Tyrese had like 23 points, zero rebounds, and zero assists. I know, like yeah. The, the pure bucket getter stat line. It was so funny. Man, and this is going to sound corny, but I really firmly believe this. There is something about Tyrese in front of the Philly crowd, too. Like, I've seen him do it enough where it really does feel like when the crowd is going, Tyrese, like, builds off that, and he takes it to another level. He just does. Like, Joel's awesome. Joel is an unbelievable talent. Obviously, Harden is, too. I've covered enough Sixers home games now where I can just tell, to your point about the avalanche, Tyrese truly does embrace, like, that oh, the crowd's going, like, I'm going to get him going even more. And then when they're going, he'll come down to court and he'll do the heat check and he'll make two threes and, that, like, it'll explode. Like, it's just a very unique thing that I've seen in my experience cover, uh, of the games I've covered. I don't know if it's like that on the road. I'm not at the road games. But it just seems like at home, Tyrese can be a next-level player because, and I think some athletes just have it and some don't, he seems to have it in him of, like, the moment's big. This is my chance to do something exciting and get everybody cheer. All right, I'm going to go do that. And I think it is a special quality in him. When you talk about his next step, look, I don't think he's going to grow four inches and put on 40 pounds. Like he's <laughs> always, he's always going to be undersized. Um, 
And I've compared him to Lou Williams. I don't mean that in an insulting way. It's just I, he reminds me of him and like his stature and his ability to just score and be a bucket getter and all those things. So I don't know what his next step is. But I do think that like his personality and his just complete willingness to like rise to the moment when you can feel it in the arena is, is definitely a special quality. He can shoot. He's fast. All those things. But it does also feel like he has in him somewhere the ability to be that guy. Maybe that's it. And maybe that is his next step. Well, and I, I do think there's, if you're talking about the relationship between him and the fans, I do think there's some of that same dynamic with Jalen Hurts, right? Where people yeah. could see early on that he was talented, but clearly had work to do, like was not the finished product. And, you know, there was reasonable skepticism about how good he was going to be. But they had always heard he's a hard worker. And then you see that hard work turn into results and it like naturally builds that, that trust, that faith, that like love for the athlete that is different than, mm -hmm. you know, like signing a free agent who's just very good or right. drafting a guy, you know, top five, top 10 in a draft. And that guy's as good as you expected to see somebody be kind of a developmental success story. Those guys endear themselves in a way that I think it's hard for like the, the superstar star level guys to do. Now, obviously Jalen coming off a MVP caliber season, he is now in that star superstar yeah. category, but that was an ascent to that level. That was not like he did not arrive with those expectations. We're talking about using him as a wildcat guy when he comes in, <laughs> or he's battling just to be on the field at all. And so I think Tyrese's story is very similar where he comes in. It's like, oh, wow, this guy fell in the draft. who's a good talent, but it's got a lot to work on. And not only has he improved on some of his weaknesses, I mean, he's far exceeded any kind of expectations I think people could have had for him when he was drafted. And I think that plays into, you know, well, the love that he gets from the fans. And I think another similarity between the two is they've improved at things that you're not supposed to be able to improve at, right? Like in football, if your accuracy is a problem, generally coming out of the draft, they discuss that as, I don't know if you can fix that. Like there's a reason the Josh Allen thing was, was such an anomaly in shooting. I mean, you could speak to this more, you know, I guess you can improve as a shooter, but I didn't think you could go from being like uh, an okay shooter to being what Maxi is. Like, it feels like the specific things that they've really improved on are unique in that regard in terms of their ability to go from being just okay at them. And in, frankly, in Hertz's case, maybe not even okay to now being elite. Like Hertz is an elite accuracy guy. And Maxi is clearly an elite uh, three-point shooter. Yeah, I mean, you can definitely improve as a shooter. It's one of the reasons that people pay more attention or scouts pay more attention to free throw numbers compared to college three-point numbers because it's the underlying like, okay, mechanics are good. He's a consistent free throw guy. We can work with that and build out to the three-point line. But this dramatic of a jump is yeah. definitely very rare. Like going from all right, he's like a low 30s, maybe mid 30s at best guy to, and somebody who's really only taking a few shots a game to a high volume, high efficiency, and honestly like high difficulty shot maker from three. That's a totally different level. And that's not something you see very often. And that speaks highly of his work ethic. And, you know, people talk about work ethic, but it's also important that he focused on the right things, right? Yeah. Like you can work really hard, but not do things that are actually productive and beneficial to your career. 
I think he clearly had the right people around him and he identified the right things to say, this is what I need to work on the most and get better at to be, you know, like an everyday starter type player for this team. And now he took that role and he ran with it. So, you know, kudos to him and everybody who's worked with him on getting better. Well, I think to kind of bring it full circle, we could agree that in addition to the timeout by Doc, the development of Maxi, another big move by Doc to uh, to turn this team into... Wait, on that front, speaking of, so Sam Cassell walked through the media room right. last yeah. night as uh, Tyrese is giving his press conference and was yelling, my protege, yep. Tyrese Maxi, and was just so excited. Well, that, it had to be fuel for all the... Cassell should be the head coach, people. But you know. as, as someone that watched Shane Steichen stump for a head coaching job for basically an entire calendar year, you cannot tell me Sam Cassell didn't stand out when the media is going. And when he's saying my protege, he's basically being like, hey, everybody, I'm the reason that guy's good. Just a quick heads up in case anybody wasn't aware. So I always appreciate some good uh, some good self-promotion. So, so nice job by Sam Cassell there. But all right, so they're up 2-0. Kyle goes to Brooklyn now, so that'll be fun, I'm sure, for you. Uh, you know, get a chance to be in the city. You get, uh, you know, some actual things in your house now. Every time I see you, there's less things behind you. So hopefully you'll be in a, a nice big hotel room with lots of stuff. And uh, they'll try to go up 3-0. And according to you, the series should be over at that point. So hopefully, uh, you know, after they go up 3-0, this thing is just, uh, this thing's in the bag and done. We shall see. I will. Uh, I will give you the the best reports I can from Brooklyn. I I hope this series is over for my sake yes. on Saturday, and that we get some uh, some time to relax next week, heading into what is expected to be a crazy round two. And uh, yes, exactly. Start to preview the the Boston series. So, all right. Thank you to everybody for listening. Uh, if you're still listening at this point, please hit that auto download button. You get all the episodes first. You get them as soon as they come out. Leave a five-star review. That would be much appreciated. Always makes my day to open the app in the morning to see a new review. Um, we will be back, uh, obviously, hopefully before the game, but at the very least uh, after the game to discuss hopefully a Sixers win and uh, really start that Boston preview. So um, talk to you guys all next time. And Kyle, I'll see you soon. Talk to you guys soon. <laughs>